Hello. I think some of you might be new here. If you are, welcome. My name's Alice. I am a poetry nerd from Melbourne. And this is a show where I talk mostly to Australian poets. Sometimes I have solo rambles in between those interviews. I'm really, really happy that you're here. If you ever want to get in touch with me, you can email me at poetrysayspod at gmail.com. Today's interview is with the poet Kate Middleton. Kate lives in Sydney now, but she grew up here in Melbourne, and she spent some time studying in the US as well. There's a bit of a backstory to this interview. Kate's first collection, which was called Fire Season, came out in 2009, and that book won the West Australian Premier's Prize for Poetry. Her next collection was Ephemeral Waters. That one was shortlisted for the 2014 New South Wales Premier's Award. And since then, she's also published a book called Passage. That one came out in 2017. I had this really fixed idea in my mind of who Kate was as a poet. I never really know who is out there listening. I don't trust my stats and I don't hear from people that often. Uh, I definitely didn't think Kate was one of the people who was downloading my show every week. But it turns out she was. I was totally wrong, as I so often am. And she wrote me this beautiful email a couple of months back and said so many lovely things about the show. And that gave me the green light that I wanted to ask her to talk. Then she sent me the manuscript for her next book, which is called Television. It's not published yet, but I got to read it. I think I'm one of only a few people who's had a chance to read it. And I was so excited. It was one of those... It's hard to read um, poetry manuscripts on screen, at least for me. I don't enjoy it. But as soon as I opened this this file and started to read the poems inside, I just I didn't want to stop. Kate's taking a massive risk with this book, I think, but it's a really fun type of risk. She's writing about TV. That's the title. It's there in the title. She's writing about television. Uh, This is not something that I expected from my idea of who Kate Middleton, the poet, was. And again, that was was a very silly and ill-informed idea that I came up with on my own. Uh, But yeah, I'm just, I'm so excited that she has done this. And I do hope it makes its way out into the world soon so that you can read it too. We don't just talk about that book though. That would be unfair, given that you can't read it yourself, although there are poems from it that have been published online. It's a big, wide-ranging chat. We also talk about kindness, scarcity. Kate has some really excellent ideas for workshop. Uh, She's a teacher as well, and she's got some really simple fixes that I think would really change things. And we talk quite a bit about America because, again, Kate has lived over there. We also talk about reviewing and how Kate has high standards for herself around reviewing. Towards the end of our time together, I asked Kate about her role that she now holds as poetry editor for Island Magazine. I didn't even realise that she was doing that work when we sat down to talk. It only kind of became clear as we were talking. I've actually put that part of the conversation to one side, and I want to come back to it as part of a future episode because I think it's too good and too useful um, to have as the last part of what would be a longish chat. So look forward to that one. So that's enough throat clearing from me. 
Thanks again for listening. Please enjoy this conversation with Kate Middleton. So I read your new book. It's really, really cool. Uh, I I want to know about the decision to write about television because to me this feels like you have you've let go of something and you've decided to there's there's a line in it that I think sums it up beautifully. What happens if I abandon prestige? That seems like the key line in the collection. But I wonder what freed you to write this manuscript? So I think my answer is a little odd and embarrassing, but also I think the whole manuscript is about embracing things that are a bit embarrassing. Um, And there are a lot of things that tie into it Um, but I think the big thing, honestly, was the death of Luke Perry, which I was incredibly surprised by the fact that I kept feeling things Mm. and saying, why am I emotional about the death of Luke Perry? Like, why am I suddenly crying? Why am I like thinking all these things when, you know, I watched... 90210 and it's a ridiculous show (laughs) ridiculous uh and all of these other things are going on and have you seen him in plenty of things like he was in the first Buffy movie and he shows up in terrible Riverdale and there's a show of his that um has never been released on DVD or streaming that I really want to see from sort of you know his years in the wilderness a little Canadian sort of science fiction show but I just kept coming back to the fact that I was really sad, but also I was surprised because yes, we get these celebrity deaths and we get their like little moment of like, ah, what happened? Uh, But at the same time, um, they vanish. And among those vanishments, you might get one article and there were like two different stories in the New York Times including like an editorial on what Luke Perry meant to a generation and I'm like well a like am I part of a generation I kind of slip between them according to some definitions yeah so there's that and this suspicion that it wasn't really about necessarily Luke Perry um but about something about having you know, the older siblings that showed me something about how to exist as a teenager. Um, I have two older brothers. They were not at all engaged in like what it was to be a teenage girl. Um, And so 90210 had this really weirdly important part in my life. Um, 
there's also, you know, there's other strands to it. I started taking seriously in my teaching um, the idea that a lot of students liked fan fiction and trying to connect fan fiction to a much longer tradition. Uh, and there's this great little article by Van Batten in The Guardian about what they called um, mentorification and this idea that things gain prestige when men get interested in them. So, you know, think about Beatlemania and young girls screaming and that being mocked and then suddenly every serious male collector has the Beatles in their collection. It's like, oh, this belongs to us now. Um, <laughs> Never thought about it that way. <laughs> or something like Buffy the Vampire Slayer mm. sort of gets ridiculed a little bit for its teenageness until someone's like, oh no, this is an auteur at work. Um, so season one didn't get a lot of attention and then suddenly people in season two are like, oh, Joss Whedon, it's about Joss Whedon, not about, you know, Buffy. Um, so there's this thread of that. And then also for a lot of time, Jess Wilkinson and I had been talking about doing a collaboration. Um, and we sort of started a couple of times and she had this idea that we should write about trash TV because when we got together, we talked about poetry, but we also talked about trash. Mm. Um, and yeah, I have watched a lot of TV. Um, so initially the first couple of poems were sort of sent to a group of people that Jess had gathered. Um, and we had this idea that we'd write like one poem a month each. And then by the time the second prompt had come around, I'd already written like 10 poems. Mm. I'm like, oh. You can tell as you're reading it that they're coming easily. It's all in couplets, no titles. And the, you've, you sound so comfortable. Like, I, I've been trying to think about how to say this to you because I really don't want to make it sound as if um, I don't appreciate your earlier books. But I feel like this has allowed me to meet you and to know you in a way that I, you know, the, the poet that wrote Fire Season is obviously highly accomplished and extremely well read, but I don't, I, I need to be able to see the person inside the poem. That's just me. That's my taste. And in television, it's like, oh, it's Kate. <laughs> I get it. Yeah, I, was, that, I hope that lands in the way that it's no, intended. no, definitely. Mm. I sort of I was aware when I was writing Fire Season that I was thinking about a subject overall as kind of an absence, um, and that it was a way of expressing forms of disconnection, um, and you know my own sort of sense of you know, being awkward and anxious and sort of watchful, and you know you get in conversation with me, I'm quite garrulous and all these things and so like my students and a lot of my friends never realize that I'm like really shy and just want to go hide and recover from having talked to people mm. um and so I think a lot of that sort of sense of anxiety uh and disconnection sort of gets distilled in fire season and also in passage um ephemeral waters I sort of put as a different freer thing but it's also free because it was a subject I didn't have to be part of as such yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. I can't believe that your second book is like over 100 pages book length poem about the Colorado River. Like, that's such a huge swing for a second collection. You're just like, you know what? This. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I think I think in books more than mm -hmm. not. Mm -hmm. um, even though sort of fire season and passage are much more sort of traditional. Here is a 
sequence of poems that aren't a sequence, mm. um, but a set of poems that I've decided go together enough to be a collection. But I've got a lot of different sort of things that are in various states of finish that are each their own book um, as well. And just in terms of that sort of letting go um, and... Well, I mean, I've, for the last several years, I've said to myself that I work on things with the assumption that they're unpublishable. Um, so that's freeing. And sort of, I usually is around the 90% mark of finish. And I'm like, oh, maybe this is something um, that can actually like see the world and not embarrass me or embarrass me in the right way. Because I think embarrassment is also a really interesting emotion. Um, so there's that on television. And then because television... It evolved over a couple of years and like the first draft I wrote, yes, quite quickly um, in the second half of 2019. Um, and so there's a lot of thinking through responding to various Me Too moment things in it, um, as well as like my never ending quest to find out why I had cried when Luke Perry died. Um, and at the same time, it... Like, it's actually been through a lot of drafts. Um, I've taken out probably eight full poems. I've cut a lot of poems down to almost half their original size. Um, and, like, you know, sometimes I'm like, did I clean it up too much? Did I take out too much? Because that mess is something that is really interesting to me. Um, <laughs> and are these TV shows too obscure for a reader? All of those things. No, um, no, I don't think they are at all. Um, they all, I recognised all of them. We don't have much overlap except for Twin Peaks. Most of my stuff is way trashier. Than I was going to say better than what I <laughs> No, 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 <laughs> way trashier. Um, yeah, it, it's just, it's a fantastic project and the follow-on from that line that I quoted is because when I was sick, inert, besieged by heartache, it was television that kept me whole. Why do we pretend that that is not the case? Why pretend that all we're doing is sitting studiously reading and that we're not going to something like, you know, I say something like TV, so now it might be YouTube. Um, for, for comfort, but also for emotional, I don't know, coherence, expression, like some kind of connection to something that we feel but we don't have words for. TV's allowed to do that. TV does do that. Yeah. Um, you know, there are certain episodes of TV that I watch if I want to cry. Same as, like, I know that if I read certain passages of Dickens, I will be a mess in public bawling as has happened more than once um same thing for laughter that like television and dickens can both give me that um dickens will come up in any conversation at some point <laughs> okay. just embedded in there right um <laughs> so um yeah just this sense of well i mean that word prestige so that comes a little bit from uh, this book called The Prestige Economy uh, that is thinking about cultures like literature cultures that thrive on prizes, etc. 
Um, and that idea that sort of accumulating the prizes, the residency, the grants is the important thing in a career. And, and I, I think the poems are the important thing. Um, you know, it's not an accident that I love Emily Dickinson so much. She's, you know, just working away and putting everything into little boxes and booklets. Um, so in thinking about that, I was thinking about how much, how much ego there still is, even when you're really conscious of it and trying to ignore it, um, how much anxiety there is in relationships between writers who genuinely love each other, um, but don't necessarily know how to be really happy for each other when, unless someone else is having a big success. I don't think it's possible. I don't think that humans can do that. I, I'm not sure. Like I, I've certainly had my little moments of like, oh, I wish someone would notice me. <laughs> um, but I, I, I really took to heart when I was doing my MFA, and I know that like that's a whole sort of topic area that people have lots of opinions on. Um, but just, I think it was one of the teachers just said, you know everyone well not everyone but a lot of people get their turn and you know respond to other people's success the way you would hope they would respond to yours um so there's that uh, I, I can I also, do that outwardly oh um i also really <laughs> like sir anne friedman and anna matuso I, I sort of stopped listening to their podcast but i like the idea of shine theory that mm. you know if your friends have success that also reflects in some way on you like yeah. that there's that but there's also just a thing about fandom um i wrote this short story years ago when i was still attempting to show people short stories um which was uh sort of a short story and sort of an essay on the art of writing the perfect fan letter and like it's sort of ta trying to take it to extremes and saying you know really to be a good fan you've got to be a good person you've got to do all these things because if you're an excellent person and then you're like i'm such a fan of scott speedman which the thing was addressed to and is sort of the code kt jokingly of the television book and also not jokingly mm -hmm. um that you know if i'm like just a really good person and then i say i'm a scott speedman fan people say oh yeah scott speedman he must be an all right dude oh okay sort of this like weird sort of sets of reflections back and forth and so i had these really strange um very silly ideas um but also just that i don't think we're kind enough to each other i know that's dorky um and a lot of that in the world of poetry um, you know, is that even though we're all talking about how much we hate neoliberal capitalism, we're stuck in this mindset of the economics of scarcity. And like, I love, um, Robin Wall Kimra, Native American writer. She had a beautiful essay a while ago about the economics of abundance. Um, and just saying, you know, what if sort of sharing in some abundance and putting out that sort of sense of love also is able to create um, more of that abundance back and thinking about that in terms of, okay, well, what do I have an abundance of? Oh, embarrassment. <laughs> <laughs> what have I watched an abundance of? Oh, bad TV. Um, 
why did everyone leave these out of the biographies, etc.? Mm-hmm. Um, what can I do with that? And not expect prestige from it. Like I'm getting up and saying I, I loved Luke Perry, um, but a different response. Yeah. No. I I want to jump back to what you said about about kindness, because. I think that's a wonderful idea to try to operate as if we have an abundance. We don't have an abundance though, as people trying to write poems in Australia, we've got a scarcity of money. And if we don't have a scarcity of money, we have a scarcity of time. Yeah. Uh, because we are, the majority of poets I know work at universities and everyone I know who works at a university is under a, a degree of pressure that I can't understand. I can't, I can't, when they tell me what they have to do in a given week, I have like a secondary panic attack. Um, yeah, so, so, I don't know. I guess I'm not saying we need a huge injection of cash so that we can be kind to each other. Ideally, we would just be kind anyway, despite the scarcity. But I guess what I am saying is I completely get, like we were, we were talking, I was saying before we started recording that like I'm pretty allergic to poetry world drama that often causes me to miss things and step on landmines because I try to avoid it. I can't stand conflict. But at the same time, if you're operating in this environment of scarcity, like I, I get it. I also get it. Yeah, yeah. No, yeah. I, I, and you know, I'm aware that some of the things that are most important to me in terms of ideas are very naive ideas. But that, I mean, that's kind of nice though. Like that's why <laughs> that's why television works. Yeah, I know I'm saying two, two things at the same time here. Yeah, yeah. No, yeah. I, I mean, I also work in universities mm. as a casual employee, and you know, when they tell us things like you shouldn't call yourself casuals anymore, you're sessional. It's like, oh, so that's more prestigious. Oh, no, you just don't want to be associated with those other casuals and that criticism. Or when they make you do a... um, (laughs) Here's the university making you do a unit on modern slavery and, like, seemingly completely unaware that there's, like, a couple of markers that they say are warning signs of a slide toward modern slavery. And I'm not at all saying that, you know, privileged PhD... (laughs) Possessing people in universities in Australia are modern slaves, but there are conditions there that are really gross uh, and underrecognized and unpaid. And like I know people have done the fights to sort of actually have the hours they put into marking recognized, for example. Oh, that's great. And, you know, it ends up with these huge backs and forths and like it's that kind of labor is um, crazy making. So... From that perspective, the university is, you know, it's, it's really messed up and like I, I teach too much and I do so because I'm terrified of not getting teaching if I say no to things. Um, and I'm also really, I really object to the fact that I feel students get much less now than Absolutely. I got. Absolutely. That's the other thing that, that really strikes me when I have these conversations is Um, Yeah, what the students are getting. Mm. And, you know, the teachers I had also, because they 
weren't as pressured had more time to be generous with students and like I really try to give back the kinds of generosity that have been given to me a lot of times during my life um and then I also do the editing side of things and you know I know that I totally understand why a lot of editors are just like okay these are the 12 fonts everything else tick no whereas I'm like I have put pressure on myself to go back in and reopen every file and write the name of the person myself on a letter if I'm not able to publish it I try to about half of them I try to give some kind of comment um again just thinking through how we got to that stage of thinking this is not important to the people who are submitting that it is easy for the people because it's all online and you don't have to go out with stamps and envelopes like back in the day or something it's like no it's terrifying every time if you're a certain kind of person Mm. Um, and even if you're not and you have that really thick skin which I don't have um, I think it still has a lot of meaning when someone said okay I really read this and it doesn't fit here where I have out of this you know thousand something poems the ability to pick 12 Mm. but here are some thoughts in one sentence because yes that's all I have time for um, and you know, I'm also aware that I can do this because I, I don't have kids. Um, I'm a sort of, you know, I float around and I read things and I try to incorporate writing time into my writing classes where we'll just do an exercise for 10 minutes, but I really take to heart what Sarah Manguso said about doing her MFA in Iowa years ago where all the fiction writers were working all the time but she was a poet and she got to sit down for 10 minutes once a week and write a poem and then she'd go and just do things (laughs) it's like okay um (laughs) that's you know 10 minutes is enough for a partial draft but it's still getting a thought that is more than nothing um so like I have all these things that I do but that scarcity um, and how that comes in from the academic side is there. I've kind of stopped thinking of myself as a real academic. Um, Why is that? I want to teach people how to read closely and I want to teach people what you can do with all these different ways of approaching using language. And you don't have the freedom to do that? I do, but I I feel like the creative writing, especially within the Australian university, is a bit more anxious about its status or its ability to be in the university than in some other countries. Uh, And so there's a lot more theory that's taught within that university setting. And I think that theory is really interesting, but I don't think it's there to help the undergrads. Yeah, okay. I think the undergrads are still, you know, we see what they're coming out of high school with in some cases as well, and some of them can write beautifully but still don't know what an adjective is. Um, that There's some really fundamental work that's just not being done because we have to say, look, we're producing this theory and we're um, teaching this theory and we're instilling this institutional approved format of a workshop that is all you know this is what professional writers do is it it? no they all seem to sort of hate it though like workshop the idea of the workshop i feel like for as long as i've known about it i've also known about 
the fact that everybody doubts and Sammy hates it. And you mentioned over email that that was something that had been on your mind recently, thinking about alternatives to the workshop model. Have you have you thought of something? <laughs> um, well, I think that the workshop model is something that doesn't need to be jettisoned entirely, but it does, it shouldn't be the centerpiece. It shouldn't be the only thing. Um, so the book, um, Poets on Teaching, a source book or something, it was edited by Joshua Marie Wilkinson and has lots of poets who teach in creative writing programs in America. So I'm aware that a lot of what informs my thinking is quite American centric because of my time there, sometimes comes out in my R's, um, <laughs> that, um, so I think it's Hannah Barnadav um, is talking in one of her pieces about how if you go to a fine art sort of class and a workshop with a crit involved, you're still doing the, the fine art in the classroom. Mm-hmm. Like you go to a fine art class and you're going to draw. And that writing in the classroom has been far too little part of creative writing, in my opinion. Mm. And I think that... Actually, what you can get down in five or ten minutes is constantly surprising to students. And that if I had the time where I didn't have to also run a workshop and could do that for half the class, that would be amazing. Um, I also love the um, poet Wa Nguyen and her sort of model for these private classes she teaches in her home um, where you know, it'll be however many weeks that are focusing on a single poet, everyone goes and buys the books of that poet, and then for one hour they all read together, and then for one hour they write. And there's no workshop, but at the end of that class, at the end of however many weeks with that poet, you then have a consultation with Wanyuan about what you've written. I also think that we workshop too early, that students aren't ready to take in what they hear in a workshop. Um, and we also get okay, let's make the whole class participate as a way of surveilling that everyone is paying attention or that they've done the thing. Um, so I started a few years ago to use the first hour of a two-hour workshop at one of the universities I taught at for more writing and talking about writing and then had everyone do small group work in that first year. They still were workshopping with each other. Um, they weren't hearing as so many voices. Yes, I can't guarantee that they're all getting and giving advice that is perfect, but also most of the advice that they get, they don't listen to yet anyway because they're not ready to take it in. So and it's just practicing that, going through that experience of hearing somebody talk about your work and not like crumpling into a ball. Yeah, a sense yeah. of it being slightly public, but mm. also I think that the thing that I try to instill is the idea that writing like responding to work is actually where you learn most when you see another writing doing a thing where you're like oh i always do that and it's not working and you'll be like oh absolutely absolutely you learn so much from the bad poets in the workshop and being able to sort of critique that and then recognize when you do it yourself i think that students are going to learn a huge amount from that um and then i also focus a lot on community from the very start and say you know yeah you've got me for a semester i know some stuff but you could have each other for much longer and like doing the work together and being together and i, I like try as much as possible to make assignments variable in the sense that like if students come to me and say actually we really loved that collaborative exercise you did with us can we write a collaborative project i'm like yes mm-hmm. do it um so 
yeah, and thinking through there's, you know, it's a pedagogy article, so some of that's, you know, scholarship that I, I feel a bit sort of like I am not smart enough to um, appreciate or whatever, but it, one that was very influential is thinking about the different models of how creative writing has been taught across time. Um, you know, whether you're doing the imitation or working one-on-one -on -one with a great master, like a lot of those sort of mentorships that get set up now that, again, people get charged a lot of money for, mm. um, or the workshop model, or um, a feminist pedagogy, which I think is just a, like, hey, we're all human pedagogy and is trying to be non-hierarchical and um, I think takes a lot from, for instance, bell hooks and teaching to transgress and and that, or inspiration, which no one takes seriously. Mm. Um it's like, what do you mean, inspiration? It's like, well, you know, if I give you an exercise and you have to respond right now, isn't that a form of inspiration? Um, and then if you take seriously that, isn't that also something interesting? And then, like, this multimodal trying to combine all these things. So, like, I think a lot about how you can get things done in the writing workshop where students actually improve in the semester, not between semesters when they've gone away and chewed it over and they've recovered. <laughs> recovered yeah absolutely yeah well it sounds like you you do have some ideas you've got some ex <laughs> exceptionally good ideas uh and also if you're if you're not smart enough to understand uh scholarship about pedagogy then uh, uh the all pedagogy screwed. stuff i'm okay I, I, don't ask me anything about derrida i i admire I the man i think some of the things are quite beautiful and i also could not reiterate them to save myself my dad's very anti he's my dad's into this um, French, uh, I don't even know, like, because he's really weird about talking about it. So I don't even know what this guy does, but this guy, Andre Malraux. Yeah. And also, you know Malraux. This is a, it's a running joke in our family that nobody knows who the hell dad has spent his life writing about. I know anyway, his name. I haven't right. really read his work. I right. know sort of that, what era he's part of right. vaguely, but right. no, I can't tell you anything about him. Yeah. Well... Because he's a little bit pre-Derrida and yeah. yeah, anyway, dad's very anti-Derrida. So that, that's <laughs> been my excuse to not get in, read it at all. Um, yeah, th those are amazing ideas. Uh, I think it might be good to come back to the America thing. Yeah. Because I am very self-conscious in making this show and in looking at the books on my shelf that there are just so many Americans that I, that I read and think about. I find myself very often looking to them for, for guidance and yes, inspiration, knowledge, all that sort of stuff. Um, I don't feel great about that. And I, I got to talk to Pam Brown earlier this morning who was saying it'd be good if we could come back to Australia now. We were we were over there, we looked at it and we got some stuff out of it, but we need to need to come back and look at this country and, and make it a little bit better. And I totally agree with that. But particularly reading television and also ephemeral waters and just getting a better sense of your work, it started it, I started to think maybe looking at America is a way to look at Australia but not directly not stare directly at it but yeah how do you think about all that does it do you feel you need to pull yourself back here um well i definitely i i knew for a long time i wanted to study overseas um 
because you know, I finished undergrad, which was already an exceptionally long double degree, and realized just felt like I knew nothing. Um, I'm just like, again, this is sort of my anxiety. If I don't feel like I sort of know 12 times too much about something, I can't possibly address it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, I think we share that. <laughs> so there's um, that, that side of just like, oh God, I know nothing. Um, and I, I had traveled overseas once. Um, so in 2003, I'd done the young Australian thing. I'd taken a year of my degree and I'd gone and wandered around. Um, and that was really important to me. Um, I came back less shy, which I think was crucial. Um, I would not be a teacher if I hadn't traveled. I don't mm, think I mm. couldn't just stand in front of people and claim to know anything. Um, you know, things like breaking down on the street tearfully and like the middle of Firenze and like having a nice man from Bologna just being, I can't bear to see you cry. Oh. Like what's wrong? <laughs> ah, <laughs> terrible. Um, so while I'd been on that trip, I had gone to England where I had thought since I was a child, I was meant to go. Like, you know, I grew up reading British books, watching the ABC, Doctor Who, loving that. And I just thought, I will go there and I will feel like I'm at home. And I wasn't there for very long. A friend was living in Cambridge, just sort of doing towny jobs, not to study. Um, and I also spent a day in London and I just felt like an alien. Yeah, the same experience. Yeah. I thought, yeah. I don't belong here. I don't understand it. This is terrible. Also, is there any drinkable coffee in this place? What's going on? No. Um, so then we went to Corsica and that was fantastic. But when I was coming back and thinking, okay, I have finally finished this interminably long um, undergraduate degree and I want to know more. I started a master's at Melbourne Uni where I'd done my undergrad, um, but thought I'm going to apply to places overseas. And I did it really naively and, you know, mostly applied to famous places because they were famous. Um, but I decided that I was going to apply to America because I expected to feel like an alien there. Like to me, I always thought, I remember talking with friends about travel and they'd be like, I want to go to these exotic places because there'll be this enormous culture shock. Like I want to go to Morocco and be in culture shock. And I'm like, God, I, I think the Bible Belt would be the biggest culture shock. Like I just can't imagine what it is to have people who you know, speak my language and are brought up in this sort of supposedly similar cultural milieu who... I cannot relate to at all. Um, that said, I've only been to Texas for a day. Um, so I ended up applying to Georgetown University and it was sort of the least famous of the places I went to apply for. Um, and that was because of Peter Steele, who um, I think is a really underappreciated Australian poet and was a wonderful teacher. Um, but I also know that he was you know, conservative in his tastes and sort of wouldn't necessarily have taken to everyone who went through, but he was very important to me. Um, and he had recently retired and was spending half of the year at Georgetown before his diagnosis um, with cancer. So I decided just to apply there because Peter Steele went there to just hang out half for half the year. And that's where I got in. And... I went there thinking I'm going to be an alien. Great. And when I got there, I got incredibly homesick. Like just 
awfully homesick. I came home for Christmas for two weeks after I'd been there for four months. And like at the airport, I was sort of crying to my two best friends. I don't want to go back. I don't want to go back. (laughs) Um, But I was also like attending everything that the Centre for Australia and New Zealand Studies was putting on. Um, And I just really was thinking about how that gave me some psychic distance to appreciate Australia. Yeah. Yeah. And what I was appreciating about Australia, I probably now am like, you know, despairing over as well. Um, But you know, the first time I saw someone washing their driveway in the suburbs around DC, I I just had this rage attack. And so I was reading my way through all these weird Australian parts of the Georgetown Library collection. Um, and yeah, as I said, that sort of psychic distance was really important. And it was from a thing at Georgetown that ephemeral waters sort of first got its seeds, although I came up with that when I was at Michigan then got some funding from Michigan to go on the trip itself um but I was really thinking about that as a mirror to what was happening Mm. in Australia in some well that's the thing you could have written that book about the Murray Darling but you you didn't you wrote it about the Colorado River and yeah reading it you sort of you, you can get this sense of like looking back, glancing back over your shoulder, going, "Yeah, this is all, this is all kind of the same story." Um, but so you do, it doesn't sound like you feel particularly concerned that you've been pulled into a, a vortex of American letters, <laughs> um, or if you have, like, you've been no. able to step out again. I mean, when I when I started. The masters that I abandoned here and when I went overseas, I actually thought I was going to be a Victorianist or an Americanist looking at Henry James. Oh, wow. Like, and then initially before I ended up doing my master's thesis at Georgetown on Anne Carson, um, I was going to write about Dickens and the reception of Dickens in Australia and like some really sort of interesting things that I was thinking about with like revisiting his entire work. And um, like Henry James, just love him. And so there'd always been this sense that, you know, that I really was going to be this other person mm. and that I just sort of had this pull. And I think it was homesickness just says you have to write about poetry. And, you know, I wrote about Anne Carson for that. And then for my PhD, which I did back here, I was looking at America and I wrote about Dan Beachy Quick, who is just a wonderful poet and a wonderful person. Um, at the same time, yes, like my bookshelves are crazy full of Australian poetry uh, and I, I wish I had more energy and psychic energy to do more reviewing. Um, mm. Like I really like writing reviews and being able to sort of draw out and saying what are the pleasures of this book and why should Australians be looking at this Australian poet? Um, but also I like, you know, again, Anxiety and organization and all the things um, so I, I haven't done as much of it as I should have um, but also to just add throw in like completely other thread um, I'm as infuriated by Harold Bloom as everyone else like I just I listen to interviews with him where he like dismisses Maya Angelou or whatever it's like nothing people I'm just like ah <laughs> I want to shake you or your, your damn bones um, but I did pick up the Western Canon years ago and 
started reading the essays and kind of didn't like them. But I was fascinated by those lists at the back of the Western canon. Um, and I've my copy is just crazy dog-eared. I thought, okay, I'm going to read these things and argue with this list. Uh, and I think that the, you know, I already knew how flawed it was. They're sort of, it's arranged in ages up until the 20th century. Like it's entirely sort of Western with a little bit of sort of Middle East. Like there's so many problems. Um, but, and you know, the first clue was like, okay, there's like seven Australian books on here and like, this is what's missing. Who are you, Harold Bloom? Mm. But what it did give me was also huge interest in world literature or what gets called world literature, basically all the stuff being written in non-Anglophone countries, um, as well as thinking about some of the other small English languages, the, the weird Englishes of um, certain Irish poetry or South African poetry or Kenyan poetry. Um, and so that has also been really present for me as I'm thinking about, you know, how am I influenced and just like this sort of part of me that felt like I really recognized something about the Colorado River and belong to that landscape as well as to this landscape. Um, I also feel that about Polish poetry, for example, um, like the Czesław Miłosz anthology, post-war Polish poetry, which again, I have some nitpicks about not the final publication of it, but the first edition of it. Um, like that book just changed my life and thinking about how much in combination with all the different things that American poetry can do, which can be, you know, sassy and wild, or they can be, you know, very formal and still, they can do the whole gamut. Um, but alongside, well, what is it when these are poetries that are written out of places that have been torn apart in the last century and the language has had to be put back together to make anything make meaning. So I sort of, I don't necessarily have that anxiety about looking to America um, because I feel like I'm, I'm rotating constantly. Um, and the other thing, when I was in America, I was really conscious that in Australia, we look to America, we look to England and Europe. We sometimes do our pivot to Asia and think about China. We don't look to the Pacific. Mm. Like we've only recently started to sort of publish New Zealand poets in Australia with some of Cordite's books and the like and actually have New Zealand books on the shelves here, let alone like what's happening in Samoa or Tonga or like, you know, Papua New Guinean poets, they, they're all out there and you have to sort of hunt and hunt through old anthologies to find anything. Yeah. So I just, I want to know what's happening everywhere <laughs> and then say, okay, Australia looks everywhere because of our whole anxiety about ourselves and this island continent mentality we have we're yeah. like we're a real country really but also we're tiny in terms of population and influence but yeah. we're real we're really important it's sort of real uh given so that, given how much that was a ramp sorry <laughs> but no i mean look you can hear as you're talking just how widely you've read um Half the time, listeners, I am sitting here, I'm nodding, but I, I don't actually know a lot <laughs> what it, it is that you're saying. But given all that, do you honestly still feel anxiety to write reviews? Yeah. Why? Um, I, when I first started to write reviews, my model for who was a good reviewer was Virginia Woolf. Okay, well, I setting the bar really high. <laughs> 
and she's still kind of my model for what a really good review does. Mm-hmm. Um, so, like, I always thought of if I'm writing a review, it's something that might be collected into a book because obviously it has to be at the standard of Virginia Woolf. Okay. All so right. it's so really keep, right. <laughs> but that's tough. It's tough. I don't know that it. Mm. And I'm slow as well. So people, you know, I've done some stuff for the Australian and for Sydney Review of Books and I've, I've loved doing those. Um, but they'll be like, oh, you know, why don't you get this back to us in six weeks? I'm like, oh, I might have thought of stopped thinking about like what I don't understand about this book in like three months and then maybe be ready to put some thoughts together. Because, mm. um, you know, if I want to review a book, I want to read the hell out of that book and really sort of, you know, think about what's what's going on and you know sometimes those are books that have things that are difficult and need untangling and research um like Bella Lee's Argosy like a beautiful book and I'm so glad to review it but I hadn't looked at the Max Ernst works that were important to its construction so I had to go and find copies of those and read them and like do the work that was thinking about what informs this book and where's it coming from and what's it trying to do and how do I write about this artwork as well as this poetry? Mm. Sorry, I got to, I got to, I'm such a bad reader. I'm a really bad reader. <laughs> but I guess what you're saying is like, yeah, there's, there's, there's a lot of um, weight on that approach of, of doing reviews. At the same time, if you don't do that, you're kind of just writing a blurb, I guess. Um, um. Or you're, or you're tearing it apart, but that doesn't really happen much. Yeah, I, so I kind of, I've thought a lot about the tear apart reviews and I feel like if a book deserves tearing apart, it probably doesn't actually deserve a review unless it's yeah. someone that is very prestigious and needs a bit of a tearing down. Does that happen? Oh, it does. Um, it's not a huge thing. Yeah. Um, I think, again, sort of people like, just you know, be kind to poetry. We already have so little space, etc., in the culture. So why not just sort of highlight what's actually great? Um, and you know, I did. I did write. I've written some reviews where I I don't necessarily like the work, but I recognise the work's skill and and trying to just talk about you know this is what it's constructed and being here are all the things that are are being done in this book. Um, here are the things that will make you know if you will like this book because I don't want to assume that my taste is everyone's taste. Mm, so that's like um, the descriptive review. Descriptive but also analytical as much as saying, you know, this poet is concerned with all of these things and, you know, maybe this book isn't for me. So I've got to be fair to that if I think it's a well-made book nonetheless. Um, and then on the other end i've also reviewed um so i reviewed red dock by ann carson when it came out and i love ann carson and have everything including like all the play translations and the comics and all sorts of weird things she's done um but there was something about the book that i thought was great but also transitional Mm -hmm. saying that this book actually feels really uneasy to me that she's halfway to going somewhere else with what she's doing she's revisiting autobiography of red but this other thing is also um unsettled and i I stand by that and that wasn't a tearing apart because it wasn't a book that needed to be tearing torn apart Mm. um but just that sense of 
like that in itself, a transitional book is kind of an exciting thing if you really follow an author. And I know people who have that as their favourite book. Um, so there's that. I've done some of the 300 word reviews of a whole book and they take me just as long as writing a you know 3,000 word review of a yeah, whole book. Yeah, that um, seems really, I work really tough. really hard on them and it's just, yeah, just sometimes I'm like, I'm not sure I'm the right reviewer. Sometimes when the book's not for me, I can still represent it really well, I think. Sometimes, um, you know, when I love a book, I do want to talk about, you know, here are all the pleasures that it gives me and thinking about, you know, whether it's image or it's technical dazzle or whatever it is, the music. Um, but also, it, it takes a lot out of me. Because I, I think that if I'm going to review a book, that it deserves that kind of attention. And so I don't do it enough. And then I just feel guilty. I'm not doing it. <laughs> that's that's the ideal outcome is just general generalized guilt. guilt. Yeah. yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> We've strayed really far from television from the book, <laughs> but which okay, I guess I guess I wanted to ask too. Like, you said you thought it was probably unpublishable, uh, but but will it be published? Um, I don't know. I've sent it to my publisher. Okay, uh, I haven't sort of heard. Mm-hmm. things i know a couple of more poems from it are going to be coming out later in the year right um, yeah there is one in cordite isn't there one in cordite one in ireland a couple in this little journal called dream pop um that's online that i mostly found because a friend had recommended it and then i kept submitting to it because they rejected me and i was like oh that must be great <laughs> um <laughs> that's awesome um and all those sorts of things so yeah i haven't sent them out a huge amount um, which is also, I just don't send out huge amounts of work um, because I don't know. It's That's a whole other kind of organising principle that my brain isn't great at. Mm-hmm. Um, so I kind of hoard them and then hoard all the other things I'm working on and then think maybe maybe this. Yeah. Well, I mean, it feels it feels complete to me. Um, I just, just publish it, whoever, do it. <laughs> Uh, would you like to read one? Yeah, sure. Is there something you have in mind? Yeah, I'd love to hear. This might seem like a weird choice. It's not the most representative, but there's one that begins, I can't believe I haven't mentioned Oprah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you get a Prius. Yeah, I'm just realising in the notes to you actually spell out, this book is in many ways embarrassing to me because it reveals how much I have taken ridiculous fictions into my heart. I will blush at this, but not apologize. I love that. Yeah, I feel like I got kind of sassy in the notes. You did get a little sassy, I would say. Yeah. It's like, you know what, I'm just going to say it all. <laughs> um, so this is now the 15th poem. It was the 18th, I believe, once upon a time. Okay. I can't believe I haven't mentioned Oprah. Like the day everyone sat at home on aging sofas and wished they'd been in studio, wished replaced whatever shoddy car kept them unesteemed, whatever lack kept them indexing transport network maps to navigate reality. You get a car, you get a car, you get a car. Surely a moment we'll remember for millennia, a modern veni vidi vici, where total conquest is marked by largesse unbeatable potlatch. Oprah with her endless guests, Oprah with her again renewed enthusiasm, Oprah with her Dr. Oz, her Dr. Phil, the pseudo always mixed in with the genuine. 
Oprah giving cars, giving blood, giving diet tips, and at last, political voice, when not quite dormant intolerance came active, heaved up the reality TV president. The person I know haunts every word I write these years, the numbness of the day he won, the hairpin grief, the man lodged too sharply in my head. Number 45, towering, but always happy to bring the level down. His appearances still run endless on TV, on the replay in my mind. You have to show strength and you have to be strong. I try instead to recall the night we watched Beyond 2000, millennium still a decade off. The night the climate special left me in a state of panic, like the mad cow panic Oprah raised when she announced she would no longer be eating the beef. It's light as the decades dread, while the former president's voice still rings, maybe it's a scam, hoax, half-century-plus post-truth conspiracy. It makes me wish Oprah would walk us through the science, because then perhaps we'd listen. When the New Zealand shooting happened, we were watching all the footage, kids in protest around the globe, demanding some protection, and oh, Oprah, throw your weight loss plan into that. Sure, it's all going to be a branding exercise. You get a Prius, you get a Prius, you get a Prius, but we need it, some form of generosity. At last, some good TV. Thank you. Thank you. There's another line in it somewhere where you say, I really talk about them, the things I meant already to be over. And I think that is, to me, the, the strength of the project is... You're constantly being told to, well, let me, let me phrase that in the first person. I am constantly being told <laughs> to not be so sensitive, not take things so seriously, uh, too intense, too invested. And what you're doing here is, is you're, you're not apologizing. Like you say, I'll, I'll blush at this, but I won't apologize. And in, in that poem, um, the thing that, I don't know if um, my American listeners understand this, but like we were all so fucked up when Trump got in. We were terrified. Like I was so scared. I stopped, like went on a complete news blackout because I was like, yeah, I don't even have words for it now. <laughs> so scary. But, but it's like, oh, you know, because because it comes through television there's a sense that it is somehow disposable um, and that it is yeah something that you're meant to be over so I guess that is all just to say I'm glad that you're documenting this stuff um, I'm glad that it's coming across in these really comfortable really just um, very lucid but associate associative uh, kind of chatty poems and yeah I'm just glad I'm glad the book exists or doesn't yet <laughs> hurry up <laughs> get the book out <laughs> yeah I don't know are you are you being constantly being told that stuff as well calm down you're being told to calm down oh yeah that god that just makes me think of Taylor Swift you need to calm down yeah um such a terrible song Taylor honestly I know but I still love her I can't help sure, it. sure, but I mean, <laughs> it was an ill-advised that, single. Um, when she fails, she fails so hard. Oh, but she was so sincere about it. Do you think so? I think so. Yeah, right. Yeah, no, I watched the Miss Americana thing on. Um, yeah, that's a good documentary. Yeah, yeah and um, I really 
like I, I bought it that she was sincere and this was her like really thinking about what what does allyship look like, like oh bless your little heart <laughs> that's a clang though 